You may be looking at your bulletin and see that this is a long passage, and it is a very long passage. I want to break it up a little bit as well as help orient us. If, if you're new here or if you need a review, I know I needed a review as I was getting back into the book of Chronicles to set up what we're reading as we're jumping right in towards the end of the book of Chronicles at the end of 2 Chronicles. Um, for the rest of um, our series here in Chronicles before the season of Lent where we'll be looking at a, a new sermon series, we're going to be taking chapters 15 through 36, a big chunk of the book of 2 Chronicles, and we'll be looking at highlighted kings and stories throughout. So obviously we won't be covering all of those chapters, but we'll be looking at select stories. So before we get to the text, a reminder and a review as we orient ourselves to the book of Chronicles. Chronicles is it's one of the more difficult and, and perplexing books of the Bible. It's, I've never heard anybody say, Chronicles is my favorite book in the Bible. I don't know. We've been spending some time in it. Maybe Chronicles has won you over, but I've never heard anybody say that. And, you know, for a long time in its history, I've mentioned this before, but it was no, it, its title wasn't Chronicles. Its title was The Things Omitted. Or another way of phrasing that would be the leftover extras in the Bible. And so people were not so motivated to read a book called The Things Omitted. It, it covers much of the same history and a lot of the same stories as are already covered in the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, the history of the kings of Israel. So at first glance, as you're reading it, if you're reading through the Bible, you think this is just like a rerun. I'm just engaging with the same stories that I already have heard or I've read in the book of Kings, and nobody really wants to watch a TV rerun. It's like the last thing. If nothing else is on, then maybe you'll watch a rerun of one of your favorite shows. And that's how Chronicles has been treated. But the book of Chronicles, it can, it can come alive to us when we realize its difference with the book of Kings. So the book of Kings was written to a very different audience and with a very different purpose than the book of Chronicles. Kings was written to Israel at their lowest and darkest point in their story. It was called the exile. Much of the Israelites and those who lived in the land of Judah were enslaved. They were taken away to the land of Babylon, and so they were questioning everything they knew. Who are we? Who is God? And Kings was written to them to answer the question, how did we even get here? How did we get here? But later on came the book of Chronicles. And Chronicles was written at a different time. It was written during the period we would call the return from exile. So they had passed through this low and dark point in their history. They were being allowed to go back into the land and to reestablish their identity as Israelites, to rebuild the temple, to move back into their homeland. There, was, there were many ups and downs during this return. There was a lot of hope, but there was also a lot of disappointment. There was a lot of disillusionment. Things were going well sometimes, and things weren't going well. And Chronicles was written to them to answer this question. How do we move forward? If, if King says, how did we get here? Chronicles was written to answer the question, how do we move forward? 
And both questions, I think, are important. Maybe you're asking both of those questions as we start the new year. How did I get here in my life, reflecting back? But you're also probably more thinking, how do I move forward? And Chronicles is a book that can help us answer the question, how do I move forward renewed in my relationship with God and the purpose that He has called me to? So it's a great book for people who are looking for a fresh start, who have the hope of a new beginning. But it's also a good book for people who are struggling with disappointment, who are coming out of a season of difficulty, and who are disillusioned with God and with church and even with the Scriptures. So Chronicles, it's a book of hope. It's a story, and it's stories upon stories of a God who has the power to renew our lives. He is a God who renews. That's His mission. That's His purpose, and that's what He does. So today, we are looking at the story of King Josiah from 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Bulletin page 4. With that introduction in mind, let's read the story of King Josiah. We're picking up midway into the story. He was a young king. He started reigning when he was eight years old. This is a little bit later in his reign. It says, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king. All that was committed to your servants they are doing. They've emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and had given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured on us, out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, son of Hazra, the keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her in effect, to that effect, and said, she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be poured on this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God. When you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. 
and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. The king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin join in it, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel, and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God all his days. They did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. The word of the Lord. Amen. I'll take a deep breath. Today, as we look at the story of King Josiah, we see the main lesson that's being taught in this story is that God brings renewal to our lives through the discovery and the rediscovery of the Scriptures, of His Word, of this book that He has written. Whenever Scripture, whenever God's book is forgotten and marginalized, whenever it's neglected or taken for granted in our lives, the less of God's renewing power can we expect and will we experience. Every year, the American Bible Society, they do a state of the Bible survey, and, in, and they release a report on the findings of this survey. So they have four categories to describe people's relationship to the Bible. There's Bible-engaged, there's Bible-friendly, there's Bible-neutral, and Bible-skeptics. So for 2017, in each of those categories, Bible-engaged are people who read the Bible four uh, times or more per week. They read the Bible, study the Bible, consider it authoritative. 20% of Americans fall into that Bible-engaged category. And here's what it says about that category. More often than not, Bible-engaged adults are married females from the baby boomer generation. 53 years of age on average have not been to college, are weekly church attenders, attend Protestant churches, and reside in the South or the Midwest. So that pretty much rules all of us out of that category. Those are the Bible-engaged. Bible-friendly people read the Bible less. They're a little bit less uh, convinced of its full authority, uh, for, full authority and truth. Not sure if it's completely reliable. Bible-neutral people can go either way, and then there's the skeptics. So Bible-friendly, 38% of Americans. Bible-neutral, 23%. Bible-skeptics, 19%. Every year what they're finding is that category of Bible-skeptics, Bible-neutral is growing. And in 2017, um, they reported that one-third of Americans never read, listen to, or engage with the Bible. So I'm sharing all that because I think, and I would guess and I would hope that this morning actually there are people here uh, among, among us, all of you are somewhere in that spectrum, from Bible engaged, even to those who are skeptical of the Bible, and then somewhere in between, neutral 
or a sense that you are friendly towards the Bible. And I'm sharing this for a few reasons. For my Christian friends, I think taking all that into account, I think it's harder than ever for us. It's harder than ever for us to maintain a stance, to hold to a high view of the Bible. Despite the many ways that we can access the Bible and the ways that it's available to us, the Bible engaged are shrinking in the place of Scripture in the public sphere Uh, The regard for Scripture, the respect for the Bible is slowly shrinking in our culture and in our communities. And for those of us who struggle with the Bible, for those of us who are skeptics, uh, for those of us who feel we are Bible-engaged, but it is hard to know how to be Bible-engaged in a less Bible-engaged culture and world, the story of Josiah has a lot to say to us. I think it has a lot to offer no matter where we are in that spectrum. Because Josiah's story is about a time and a culture and a community where the Bible was actually far more forgotten, far more marginalized then than it is for us. It was far more difficult to believe in and follow the Bible's teaching then than it is for us today. But even in this situation, it was rediscovered. And an amazing and an incredible and unprecedented renewal happened. So I want to look at three things that I think this passage will challenge us with and will show us about the Bible. One, first, it's the power of Scripture. This is a story about the power of Scripture. Josiah's story, I know we read a bunch of it, but there's more to it. It has a beginning, Josiah's story has a turning point, and it has a highlight and an ending point. When Josiah becomes king, he begins his reign at what is really the lowest and the darkest point up until this book of Chronicles and the story of Chronicles as it's narrating the story of Israel. Josiah's grandfather was Manasseh, and his father was a guy, a king, named Ammon. And if there was a museum in Israel that had the Hall of Fame or the Museum of the Kings of Israel, and it had the pictures of these kings listed, Manasseh's picture would probably have a little plaque underneath it that said, the worst king ever. And then next to it would be his son Ammon, and it would say, also the worst king ever. It's a tie. Because what happened under the reign of Manasseh and Ammon was was a terrible tragedy in the land of Israel. We'll look at Manasseh's story in detail more in this series. But essentially, he replaced the worship of God with the worship of the gods of the surrounding cultures and peoples. His goal, his explicit goal, was to eradicate the worship of God, the God of Israel, and erase all memory of God's Word, of the Scriptures. And he largely succeeded in that task. And his son, who reigned for a very short time, followed in his footsteps. And that whole, that whole time period, Manasseh and Ammon, was a period of 57 years. So 57 years in Judah, in Jerusalem, in Israel, The Bible was lost, and the Bible was forgotten. But then there's a turning point. Josiah is made king. In verse 3 of the chapter, it says he began to seek the Lord. There was still some memory of who they were, of this God that had redeemed them and that had formed them as a people. He starts clearing out all the idols and the gods. He starts repairing and restoring the temple, and that's when we read the book of the law of the Lord was found. And that's the turning point. 
in this whole story. No one really seems to know what it is or what to do with it. In verse 18, we saw this guy, Shaphan, one of the king's servants. He says, as he's giving a report to Josiah, he says, okay, we're doing all the work. We're cleaning things up. We're repairing the temple. Oh, and the priest gave me this book. Here's a book. And he starts reading it. And when he reads it aloud, Josiah starts tearing his clothes. He's overcome with conviction. And this leads to an entire national transformation. You may be wondering, what exactly was this book that was found? There are two main viewpoints on this. It's either the book of Deuteronomy. Many scholars see that because of how it's talked about. Deuteronomy is often called the book of the covenant. Or it's the entire Torah or the, the first five books of the Old Testament. Either way, when they found it and when they read it, it was an incredible turning point for the entire nation. The highlight of Josiah's story is in the next chapter, chapter 35. And it's something that Chronicle says that even David and Solomon, if there was a Hall of Fame museum of the kings of Israel, David would be the best king and Solomon would be the second best king. And it says that Josiah did something that neither of these kings ever did. And it's told in chapter 35, there's a huge covenant renewal ceremony. And everybody, the whole community, participates and is renewed. And it led to the most impressive Passover pilgrimage ever organized by any king. Chronicle says something like this, it hadn't happened since the days of Samuel the prophet who preceded King David. And so here's the summary from chapter 35. It says, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, actually from 34 this is, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. In all Josiah's days, they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. So this is the context, this is the story from everybody forgetting about God, forgetting about His Word, to everybody following the covenant, from everybody listening to the Scriptures. They had rejected His law, they had rejected their covenant relationship with Him, but here at the end, they're more united, they're more faithful than maybe they've ever been as a people. What could lead to this type of renewal? How did this happen? It all came about as a result of the rediscovery of Scripture, of the book. A few points of application then. If this morning you're discouraged, if you're at a low point, if your story is a story that's filled with brokenness and a difficult past, if you feel spiritually far from God, and it's been a really long time since you experienced any kind of renewing power, any kind of renewing experience with His Scriptures and in your relationship with Him, any kind of real change, if the Bible just hasn't come al alive for you in a long time, if this is where, you at, where you're at right now, the message of this text is that the Word of God is powerful enough to bring about change and renewal in your life. Not just a tweak, not just a slight change but a 180-degree change, a complete turnaround, a revolution. 
Jesus' favorite image to describe the power of the Word in the Scriptures was a seed. The Word can seem so ordinary, so small, so unimpressive, it can be easily missed. Just like here where Shaphan says, well, here's a book. But when it's read and when it meets fertile soil, its incredible power is released. A seed. When it's cultivated over time, it grows into a tree that brings about great fruit. And here we also see not only the power of God's Word, but we see His pursuing initiative. God was found by a people who weren't even looking for Him. And His Word was found by people who had forgotten Him. And so we can be encouraged. Even if we feel so far and forgotten, God pursues us. He pursues us with His Word. That's the power of Scripture. And the story of Josiah is clearly meant to show us there is power in God's written Word. It can bring renewal in our lives. But the reality for both my Christian friends who are here with us and those exploring Christianity who are here, we don't always experience that power. We don't always feel that power happening in our lives, that type of renewal. And for a lot of you, for my Christian friends, you might say, I've experienced some of that power in my life, but it's been a long time. A lot of times when I'm engaging with Scripture, hearing Scripture, reading Scripture, it feels dry, it feels lifeless. It doesn't seem to connect. And this can happen to anyone. Those who are engaged in teaching and preaching the Word of God, it can happen and has happened in my life. And those who have little contact with Scripture. Josiah's story then shows us not only the power of the Scriptures, that the Scriptures have power in and of themselves, but it also shows us the posture for our lives that opens up and releases and unlocks that power. I want to look at three different ways that Josiah hears the Scripture that show us three different postures, the way that we can listen to Scripture. First, we see that he listened from a posture of tender-heartedness. He was tender-heartedly listening to the Scriptures. In verse 27, this prophetess Huldah delivers a message from God to Josiah. And here's what she says. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God, when you heard His words, you tore your clothes and wept before me. I, myself, God says, have heard you. Because of Josiah's tender heart, this powerful connection was reestablished between him and God. God says, you heard me, so I have also heard you. And that shows us ultimately the goal of Scripture is relational, to connect us to God. We hear God and He hears us. The opposite of listening with a tender heart, the opposite of a tender heart is a hardened heart. Psalm 95 says, today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. That psalm is a psalm that encourages us to take a daily heart check. Is my heart tender or is my heart hard? It says, today, if you hear the voice of God, don't harden your heart. And most of us wouldn't say, when we begin our days and our mornings, I think today I will have a hardened heart. I think today I'll walk through the day with, with a heart that is hard. 
But to choose to have a tender heart is to choose a heart that's more easily hurt. A tender heart's more easily broken. A hard heart is protected. It's guarded. It's defended and shielded from being broken, being called out, and changing. We look at Josiah, we see he experienced a very genuine hurt and grief for his own sin, for his own spiritual condition. And he was wrecked. The old language for this in describing repentance is that when we hear the Word of God, when it really gets through to a tender heart, we experience compunction and contrition. Compunction means that our hearts are pricked. And contrition means that they're broken. To have our hearts cut and broken is always humbling. It's always hard. The reason we choose a hardened heart is because we don't want to be humbled. We don't want to be rebuked. We don't want to change. We don't want to be judged. But all real change and spiritual renewal is always painful. It's always hard. It always requires cutting and breaking. There's a story... In the Chronicles of Narnia, one of my favorite series of stories by C.S. Lewis, of the boy named Eustace. His name was Eustace Scrub, and his character underwent a profound transformation and renewal in the story. He began as this very selfish, arrogant bully. He was a terrible person. And when he discovers this dragon and this dragon's treasure on an island, he actually transforms into a dragon, and he becomes very scared, and he becomes very disoriented, and he wonders, how, how am I going to solve and become healed and become back to my former self? So he turns into a dragon, and he meets the Christ figure in the story, the lion Aslan. But the dragon meets the lion, and the lion says, Eustace is speaking now. You will have to let me undress you. And Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but it was pretty near, I was nearly desperate now. So I lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And he pulled the beastly stuff right off. And there... I was as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. He threw me in the water. It hurted like anything but only for a moment. I found then that all the pain had gone away from me. And then I saw why he had turned me into a boy again. It's a story of how God does his healing work. That in order for us to be renewed and transformed, there has to be that compunction and that breaking, the cutting and the contrition of our own hearts. And one of our main struggles with reading and listening to the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is we, we say, I really don't want to have to hear all about the judgment and the wrath of God. 
In verse 21, it says, when the king heard the word of the law, he tore his clothes. He said, great is the Lord's wrath on us because we haven't done everything in this book. But there's a surprise that King Josiah experiences. And it's a surprise that everyone who listens to the scriptures with a tender heart experiences. Though God humbled and broke Josiah because of his sin, Huldah says, because his heart was tender and humbled, that God will give him peace, that God will remove the judgment against him. Even before Josiah made any changes in his life, even before he started obeying everything that he had been broken by, God's anger and God's wrath was turned away from him. And so what we see is this, that God never wounds us and breaks us to harm us, to punish us, to leave us there. He only wounds us, He only breaks us with His Word in order to heal us and to restore us. When we go to the doctor, when we go to our physician and he or she tells us, your cholesterol is high, and we get a bad report about aspects of our health, we don't say to our physician, why are you judging my body? I didn't come here to be judged by you. Our doctor would say to us, I'm telling you these things for your health so that you can become whole and healed. I think this is why Jesus attracted people who who knew they were broken. That although Jesus taught with more authority than anyone, if you were going to hang out and spend time with Jesus... You knew he was going to call you out. You knew he might break you. You knew that he might say something that would offend you. And yet, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is throwing a party with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees are asking, why are you hanging out with these people? But another question to ask is, why are these people hanging out with him? They know their lives aren't good and straight and according to the law of God, and yet they are drawn to Jesus to be in his presence. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why did they eat with Jesus? He had this incredible combination of absolute authority that might break you, but unparalleled tenderness that would heal you and put you back together. And that's the God of the Bible. We listen with a tender heart to the Scriptures. Our lives are transformed. Josiah also shows us what it looks like to listen to the Scriptures from a personal posture. A personal posture is hearing God's Word with specificity to me, to my life and my situation, and prayerfully letting the Bible read me. This is in contrast to other postures that we can often take when it comes to listening and reading the Scriptures. We can stand over the Scriptures, we can stand beside the Scriptures, or we can kneel under the Scriptures. When we stand over the Scriptures, that's when we stand in judgment over them. And often when we're studying, when we're asking questions, when we're doubting, when we're skeptical, these things are all healthy when they're a part of us learning and exploring and seeking truth. But even our study our skepticism, our doubts, our questions can be ways we're putting ourselves over the text instead of under the text. 
something we can ask ourselves. If we're more excited about what the Bible says than what the Bible says to me, that's a sign that we might be standing over the text. Mark Twain said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Another posture we take to reading the Scriptures is standing beside them. This is a religious posture that uses Scripture for self-justification and the judgment of others. Josiah, when he heard the Word being read, he could have responded and said, this is good, look at all the good stuff I'm doing. I'm already trying to clear out all the idols, I'm already trying to obey. Compared to all the other people, I'm kind of the only one who's good. I'm set. Thank you for this book. Now I can use this book to blame others, to rebuke others, and to correct other people. If criticism is more frequent and natural to us than confession, if judgment is more natural than compassion, if seeing wrongs in others over admitting our wrongs comes more naturally for us, it's a sign that we're standing beside the Bible. We are using the Bible as a way for us to point the finger at other people and saying, look, the Bible is on my side against all of you. But we see from Josiah what it looks like to kneel under the Scriptures. His leadership was so powerfully blessed by God to produce an unprecedented revival and renewal because his own repentance was so deep and personal. He put himself under the Scriptures, and he began with personal repentance. And this really is the only way that God can use us to speak into the lives of other people. If we maintain a posture of personal and specific repentance ourselves, before we ever move to look at, to speak about the sins of others, their faults, and their failures. So we, lean, we kneel under the Scriptures. It's the posture we see from Josiah. Thirdly, the last posture that opens up the Bible to us is to listen to it communally. Listening personally to the Bible does not mean listening privately to the Bible. Josiah needed help to apply the Bible to his life. When he heard it, he tore his clothes and he said, go inquire of somebody to learn what this means. I need help in applying it to my life. And so he sent out his advisors to the prophet, prophetess Holda. He needed help outside of himself. He needed wisdom. He needed perspective. He needed somebody from an outside perspective to help him see how the Bible speaks into his life. Tenderheartedly, personally, communally, listening to the Scriptures. That kind of posture, that doesn't come naturally for us. It requires some planning, some intention, some purposefulness in order for us to maintain that posture. And I'm just going to do one more little announcement or plug for how we encourage this, a tool for tenderheartedly, personally, and communally reading the Scriptures. Everybody should have a plan in their lives for how they will engage the Scriptures, a place in our lives and our schedules to do that, and a people that we're reading Scripture alongside. So I'd encourage you, as we start the new year, 
to evaluate that, to make this year a year of renewal for how you will engage God's Word and take a posture that will open up its power in your lives. Last point. We rediscover the power of Scripture. We see that power in this story. Rediscovering the posture of, of Scripture from the way that we see it work in Josiah's life. And thirdly, we need to rediscover the hero in Scripture. It's pretty easy to identify the hero in this story. It's Josiah. But it's also straightforward and, and tragic to see what happened to the people when the hero was gone. The story is told in Second Chronicles 35 and then in the next chapter in 36 that when Josiah died, Israel went into a free fall of forgetting God and moving away from Him. And so if I were to say the main point of the story of Josiah is that we should be more like Josiah, who heard the word, who humbled himself, who obeyed, I would actually be missing the main point of this passage. The kings of the Bible, yes, they're meant to be models, but they're representatives who led the people. Here's how the Old Testament scholars would say this story was meant to be heard and read by the original readers. And that is, even though, as they're reading this, this is many hundred years after this happened. The point for them would have been, even though the, the, the kings and the line of David have failed you, they brought you to the exile, they're nowhere to be seen in the return, even though they failed you that much. Don't give up hope in a king coming who will be like Josiah, who will lead you into renewal like this, a king who will be even greater than Josiah. Josiah shows us what it looks like to be powerfully impacted by the Bible and what can happen when the power of the Bible hits us in the right posture. But the point of his story is not to be like Josiah. The point of his story is that we need a Josiah. We need a king who will come with a fully tender and obedient heart, a humble heart, who will live a perfectly obedient life to God's word to build a community of repentance and faithful obedience. We need a king who will lead us into an even better Passover than the one that Josiah led the people to. And we see that many Years later, a king like this did come. This king was a king whose heart was fully obedient and tender. And at his Passover meal, the highlight of his ministry, he showed all those who follow him what he was about to do as he was establishing, he says, a new covenant. Of course, I'm, I'm speaking of Jesus, the life of the perfect covenant keeper, the gospel tells us, is given in place of those who are covenant breakers. And Jesus says to his disciples after he died and rose again, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We rediscover scripture when we come to see that all of Scripture is meant to lead us to Him. If we approach the Bible telling us what we need to do, 
We need more information. We need to know more. We need more inspiration to try hard. We need more regulations and rules to live by. We won't rediscover the power of Scripture. But we realize that we need salvation from the outside. We need a hero. And the Bible, this book, is the book about this hero. When we let go of being the hero of our lives and reading the Scriptures as if they are about us, then that opens up a rediscovery, a rediscovery of the Scriptures and the power of the Scriptures for us. A few final thoughts of application. This rediscovery of Scripture as a story of the hero that leads us to true and genuine and wholehearted obedience. Josiah's obedience didn't earn him God's blessing and favor. Josiah's obedience, the great things he did, they flowed out of the blessing and the favor God had already shown him in grace. The rediscovery of Scripture leads us to obedience, and it gives us a tenderheartedness. We're more tenderhearted toward God, toward ourselves and other people. Instead of carrying around the weight of shame and guilt and judgment, we're set free by the grace shown to us. And so we're tenderhearted with the people in our lives. And when we understand that the Scriptures are not about us but about Jesus, our sin and failure won't isolate us. When we fail it and we don't obey, it doesn't keep us from community, but it drives us into community. We know we go in not as a second-class Christian, but on equal ground with all other broken sinners who need to rediscover the hero, the hero of the Scriptures. So this year, I want to invite you, I want to invite us all as a church to a profound and a powerful rediscovery of these Scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a speaking God. Your word has power. It is your word. It's how you not only reveal yourself to us, but it's how you show us the things about ourselves that we can't see apart from your truth. I pray this morning that wherever we stand, wherever we stand in relationship to you, that you would lead us into a powerful and renewing experience of your word, that we would learn to be tender-hearted. We would learn for it. We would learn to, to engage the scriptures in a way that they would make them powerful and personal to us. And may we learn every time we hear, every time we open, every time we listen to your word, may we learn to see and love the hero that we find within your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.